Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I am thrilled to be here, not only with Akiko. Hello. But our good friend and close colleague, Bob Domain, Principal Cello here in the LA Phil. And we're actually, we're right here in Disney Hall, the bowels of the hall. Our home away from home. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I feel like I'm sort of your honorary stand partner because I sit next to you in the orchestra. Yeah. Actually, I mean, yeah, the usual. If everybody's there, we've got Martin, and then I'm sitting second right next to him, and then on my other side is you. When I first came uh, to the orchestra, they had the violas where you are instead, so Principal Viola was on my other side. They had the violas there? They did. That's something I've never seen before. Yeah. Wrong seating number two. That's right. Yeah. Isn't that David Sanders, like his yeah. lingo from Chicago Symphony? Yeah. We're currently yeah. in wrong seating number four. No. <laughs> I like right seating number one. I mean, cello's on the left. But the outside. The, yeah, the outside. That yeah. is so, everybody, so, uh, everybody wants so much the more outside. room over there. I don't care how it sounds. <laughs> it's just so much <laughs> well, more convenient. I mean, yeah, that's that's the best reason to sit concertmaster, right? You just oh. you get all the room you need. <laughs> yeah, it, as long as it's your good side. That's right. <laughs> well, so. thank you for chatting with us today. It's uh, We've actually, your name has come up in several of the episodes. And, oh, no. <laughs> um, well, only in the best way. And uh, yeah, just I, I knew when we started the show, I knew that I eventually wanted to have colleagues from the symphony. And, you know, here we're 30-some episodes in, and actually you're the first guest from the L.A. Phil. Oh, nice. I'm honored. To be on the that's, show. That's great. 30 episodes. Um, that's... You haven't listened to them all? I have listened to all of them. <laughs> I'm going to catch they up tonight. They just fly by because he's enjoying them so much. <laughs> no, but this is going to be fun. Got a lot of topics we could get into. I know you didn't want to plan it out, which is perfect. But I figured we could start, for those who don't know you already, kind of briefly how you got here. I mean, you grew up not on one of the coasts. Oh, Do you I, have that I, in common I, with me? I grew up in flyover country, probably the reddest of the red states, Oklahoma. My dad was in the U.S. Army. He was captain in the U.S. Army. And everywhere my dad was stationed, my parents, they had a kid. So two of my sisters were born in Watertown, New York, Fort Drum. One of my sisters was born in Wichita, near Fort Leavenworth, where the big prison is, and uh, near Fort Sill in Lawton, Oklahoma. I actually was born in Oklahoma City, so so that's where we ended up. I'm the lone Okie in the family. I mean, everybody always asks us, like, when did you know you wanted to be a violinist? And yeah, I'm still kind of figuring that out. But um, <laughs> how intense was the childhood? Did you end up going to conservatory, that sort of thing? Well, it, it, it's interesting because my mom's family was, um, she's the daughter of, of Russian immigrants to Chicago. And they all played an instrument. All six siblings played piano and another instrument. And uh, my mom was a cellist. She was actually quite a fine cellist. She ended up going to DePaul University and studying there. And then she quit inexplicably, but we get into that another time. But <laughs> um, my dad used to talk about his dad playing, my grandpa playing the squeeze box. <laughs> so we put the accordion oh, and okay. it was very rustic. So from my dad's side, we had the sort of barn dance, you know, sort of square dance type of music, the reels and, and the, the, the French Canadian music from, from his side. And my mom's side was the more buttoned up and cultured side. My great grandfather was a barn fiddler in Western Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's always, there's always one in every family. Isn't there? <laughs> yes. Can you not mind? But no. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have no. way, Maybe way back like in. a barn coto player or something. <laughs> yeah. so, so music was kind of a 
you know, a, a thing in my family for a lot of generations. My oldest sister, Mary, she was a very fine cellist and I wanted to be just like her. I just worshiped my sister. I still do. So I used to sneak into her practice area and she would, <laughs> she would let me try to play her cello when I was really little. And I remember the very first piece I played on the cello was a piece called The Fart Song. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? And it was actually a section. I Later on, I, I found the music in my sister's stack of music. It's from the block prayer. Wait, so this was, it was a written it was piece a, of music? It was a piece of music. The central section has this passage on the C string. It's really low. And she used to sing these made-up words, these made-up <laughs> lyrics to this stuff on the C string. And I just thought that was the best. And uh, so she not only cultivated my higher sense for, for music, but also my sense of humor. And I think that Mozart and his sister wrote letters like that too. <laughs> well, nobody's going to be writing about me and my sister Mary and the fart song. But anyway, that's, that's another, another story. But Mary, she was really my first inspiration to play the cello. And, and so I kind of learned from her and, you know, I was more interested in playing baseball. So in third grade, I was seven, eight, I think I was eight. Yeah. They had, uh, there was a wonderful school music program. You could choose a string instrument or you could choose a, a band instrument. And I, I actually chose both. I chose the cello, of course, because I already sort of knew how to play. And I played trumpet as well, very badly. And I also played piano So because we, we all took piano lessons and, and all that, just like my mom's people. So the instructor noticed that I had some talent and he got me hooked up with the teacher to whom I owe everything absolutely everything to her name is Jane Smith, one of the finest string teachers in the world as far as I'm concerned. I'm actually in the, in the middle of writing an article and I'm hoping to pitch it to Strings or Strad Magazine sort of in praise of the starters. Uh, yeah. It's always the closers that get the, uh, right. a lot of the credit, you know, most of the credit, at least in, in our business. Like, you know, to use a kind of a baseball analogy, it's like, you know, the Mariano Rivera yeah. <laughs> gets a lot, a lot he won the he game. gets the win, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you see, you know, studied with Leonard Rose, Janos Starker, Lynn Harrell, you know, you see all these designer names, but you don't see the ones who started you out. And I recently, I, I went to visit her and I brought her cello home with me and she used to loan me that instrument. You asked her first. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> well she, I, I played, I grew up playing on my, my mother's cello and my sister, my sister played the cello that my mother played when she was a child. And it was a real beater. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this thing was, was awful. And I grew up playing, playing on that. And, you know, despite that, I, I did well in like music competitions and stuff like that. And my teacher saw to it that I had a, a good instrument for the more important things like auditions. And, you know, I played a pretty big debut concert when I was really young with the Oklahoma City Symphony. She always let me use her cello, mm. which is a, a modern Italian instrument. And at that point, I was probably 11, 12 years old. I was at her house almost every day getting piano lessons, getting cello lessons. It was just like a game. She and taught you piano as well. She taught me everything. Uh -huh. And I had no idea the, the thorough musical education that I was receiving at the time. But I really look at her as a, a second mother. Just to say too, I mean, even today, I mean, you can sit down and play piano. You compose as well, which we may get into. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur at both of those things, but, well, but I, mean, I would never pretend to. We don't don't to. Yeah, we don't <laughs> do those things. I mean, you probably could. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if, you, I mean, if you turned over that stone. A lot of things I could do. But. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, who has the time, right? You know, I, I'd like to do more. I almost failed piano, so pretty sure I can't. <laughs> well, when, I remember when I when I decided piano wasn't for me. It was when, when it started to get hard. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a Beethoven Moonlight Sonata, last movement. I can't play that. Are uh, you kidding? I don't have the. T- anyway. Yeah, that's. I think it got hard for me when I had to like play two things at the same time. So I think <laughs> yeah. we're talking about different. I know. Different Ca- points. I can't be a slave to two two masters. You know, <laughs> I can only read one line. Um, so when I was 12 years old, I got to play for Leonard Rose for the first time. And he was my, my hero. I was at Eastern Music Festival. And Where was he teaching at that time? He was at Juilliard. And uh, before, I think before that he was at Curtis, but many years before. And he wanted me to come study with him at Juilliard or to study at Curtis and then take the train into New York and, and take lessons with him at Juilliard. So basically it was arranged that I... I had gotten accepted into both schools. When you were 12. So you were going to, okay. And it didn't materialize because my parents were very modest means. At that point in their lives and and reflecting on their lives, my my father was the first person in his entire family to go to college and to even graduate from high school. And then he joined the military. And he, I think my father really wanted me to follow in his footsteps. And he, he wanted me to do honorable work, you know, the arts, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't honorable, that wasn't honest work, if you know what I mean. So my teacher back in Oklahoma, Jane Smith, who was a, she was a member of the Oklahoma City Symphony and also a professor at Central State University, she dropped me as a student. It was like losing a parent because she was so fed up with my parents that they, A, wouldn't buy me a better cello and B, were so myopic. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, everything works out I mean, did you understand at that point what was happening and why? Or did you just think she didn't like you anymore? No, I understood. I mean, she, she had two kids of her own and I was, I was a burden. You know, I, I ended up taking lessons with this wonderful cello teacher in Tulsa named Kari Caldwell. She's principal of the Tulsa Philharmonic who had, uh, kind of thought that maybe you could go to Eastman. There's a great cello school. And shortly after, after studying with her, I pretty much quit the cello. I just, not because of Kari, but because I was fed up with my parents. I was fed up that, you know, sort of my dream was squashed. My other dream was being a catcher for a major league baseball team, but I know I don't have enough talent as an athlete. So I stopped, I stopped playing the cello. I hung out with my friends. I did rotten things. I was a terrible kid, terrible kid, acted out. And, uh, well, how long did this go on? A few years, Years, uh, but I managed to do well in school. I somehow graduated top of my class and and all that. But my good friend, who's now a a cop in Oklahoma city and in Brian, he said to me, if you don't go to music school, I'm going to kill you. You know, I said, I just want to go to Oklahoma State University with you guys. This is so Goodwill Hunting. I know, I know. It sounds like it's right (laughs) out of the script. I think it's actually the end of Goodwill Hunting. I I mean, I, this this does sound a little, yeah. That's a great, that's sweet. But uh, I entered one of these, you know, regional, like multi-state music competitions that was pretty well known in the area in in Wichita. It was Wichita State University. And I hadn't played my cello in several years, like at least two and a half, three years. Practiced like mad. I won the competition. I won like five grand. And one of the judges of the competition was a, a voice teacher at Eastman, Thomas Paul. And he was really pitching Eastman. And, and I had remembered Kari had studied with Ron Leonard, my predecessor here at the Phil. He was a professor at Eastman for many years uh, before coming out here. And so that name just sort of stuck with me. And I decided to only apply to Eastman. And I went to Dallas 
for the regional audition. I did. I couldn't even afford a plane ticket to go. Uh-huh. At that point, my parents were ill. My father was dying of cancer. My mom, my mom had had a stroke. So it was it was a difficult situation. So I went to Eastman expecting like you know to be put in remedial this and remedial that. But like I tested out of like all the things that. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, like uh, theory, theory and, and yeah, piano. and you know, I, most of us in the orchestra, we probably. Have, I would guess like ninety percent of us have perfect pitch, so I'm imagining, right? We should, you guys, we do. should do a poll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You think anybody next podcast? They let's go. Let's, next podcast, we just go around to, to members of the orchestra and <laughs> ask them to some sing. People a. are <laughs> proud not to have perfect pitch, kind of like you know, you don't need perfect pitch to play in tune, which is true. Well, I mean, the two disciplines are. are I mean, relative pitch and, and perfect pitch are two completely different disciplines. I think. I mean, relative pitch is you know the ability to. I, I would say be, be flexible. Mm-hmm. You can have a very well-developed sense of perfect pitch and, and <laughs> zero relative pitch. I know plenty of crummy musicians with perfect pitch. So <laughs> anyway, it's the musicians that have perfect pulse that I, I'm jealous of. I can't uh, pick a pulse out of the nice. Oh, I know. Yeah, you should see me have, start sweating bullets when I have to set the tempo or anything. It's just awful. Oh, God. I'm always thinking Washington Post March, and then <laughs> yeah. I go back or forward from that metronome marking. Dun, da, 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 da. I think that's about one twenty. One twenty, right? Of course, what, I've got too much other... coffee in me. Right? Oh, oh, stars um, and stripes. A star spangled banner. Dun, 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 dun. Oh no, stars and stripes. Yeah. Oh yeah, stars and stripes. Of course. I don't know what the tempo marking is for Star Spangled Banner. But, I used yeah. to praise to the attorney of Jesus from the Quartet for the End of Time. It's 44 or something to the 16th. 16th note. Note. Uh, I got a great story about that. By Just the way. go up from oh, there. Oh, no. There's, okay, so I worked at a veterinary clinic around the same time. I was being paid under the table to clean cages. It was awful. It was an execrable experience. The worst, one of the worst experiences I had, other than growing up Catholic. Um, <laughs> um, sorry. So, I have always had a job, like you know, soda jerk. They didn't call them that back then. But uh, I worked. I worked at a fifties at an ice cream store, and all, it's called Brahms, but it's but it's proud. I it's, worked at an ice cream store too. Did you? Mm-hmm. But you, I'm sure that you didn't have the the same experience I did. So yeah, I, I was only I, there for two weeks. So. They still made you clean out animal cages at the ice cream store. Right? <laughs> well, I did. I, they did put me on latrine duty. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, man. I was pretty far down the food chain there. You know, in, in Oklahoma, it's like 110 <laughs> degrees like every day in the summertime. And the line, the line was out, just zigzag out the door. You know, it's like standing at TSA. There's, <laughs> yeah. There's no TSA pre for ice cream lines. <laughs> so, okay. So everybody had to wear a white button-down shirt, short sleeve shirt, rolled them up really nice, nice and starched, brown apron. And the new, the new employees wore this big green pin that said, hi, I'm a new crew member of Brahms Ice Cream. It translated, hi, I'm going to F up your order. <laughs> so please be patient with me. Most people got to take their pins off after about a week. I... They made you keep it on. I, yeah. <laughs> so I was absolutely inept. Absolutely inept. Because I, I get nervous, you know. Like oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just... You want to do it exactly right. Oh, I know. Hard, and, yeah. and it's like the standards that... I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I told you about the... I got yelled at because I confused... I didn't know what side by side was. And so, you know, this was a oh, yeah. And they had... Like, this one woman came in and said, I want chocolate and vanilla side by side in a cup. And I said, sure. And I went, I just did the twist. And I gave it to her. She said, this is a twist. I asked for side by side. <laughs> wow. So there is a difference in case anyone's wondering. Yeah. 
Are you allowed to say the word biznatch on your podcast? <laughs> I mean, wow. That's that's heavy. Yeah, yeah no. So forgive me for steamrolling over your story with this. No, no. I, 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 this is, I'm dying to tell you. So, okay. Person orders. I'm next in line. Nice lady. She says, like a cherry soda. I'm like, okay, all right, cherry soda. So grab the thing, grab the cup. Oh, Two scoops of vanilla ice cream, Sprite or 7-Up, I can't remember. Cherry soda, some other stuff. And I stick it on the, you know, those old-fashioned <laughs> shake machines. The blades go, <laughs> I hadn't put it in the metal cup. I put it directly in the plastic cup. And put the plastic cup on. I got fired on the spot. Really? It was the worst and best day of my life. Wait, did it, did it go everywhere? It, was... it went everywhere. Oh. It went all over all the ice cream. Like, you know, has the sneeze cover for the employees. It went all over that. It went all over the grill. And it went all over the people. I mean, it was, it was like a typhoon of, it, it was like a Dexter kill room. It was bad. I'm trying to imagine what the orchestral equivalent of that would be like starting. Oh, I can think of a lot of pieces about that we start a slow movement of a symphony or something and you just start like. There was a, there was a, in my, my first principal gig at Hartford, there was a situation. Penderecki came to conduct us. It was Beethoven 4. And you know how the, the middle movement ends with this boom. Boom, 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 mm -hmm. boom. The timpanist got like a half bar ahead and the orchestra, it just, it sounded like, okay, Beethoven, Beethoven, Ives. It was like all of a sudden it was just, it was, and then Penderecki just stuck his hands, put his hands by his side and this God awful chord that was like from like Satan's blowhole. I mean, it was like, it was horrible. And it, it just, it ended the movement. <laughs> and the audience was silent. It was, it was like totally getting caught with your pants down. It was possibly the worst moment on stage. Wow. Yeah, in an orchestra that, I, that I've, ever, I've ever had. I mean, I've witnessed some pretty you know, awful things happening. So, so I'm fascinated by this hiatus you took, though, I think, because I sort of feel like I had a similar... Well, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I, I played... I, I took up the guitar and bass guitar, and, and I was writing some songs, and... Actually, at that point, I thought I might become a priest. I mean, I was like really drifting. Yeah, you're looking at me with these eyes like, Father Bob. <laughs> well, like, it's Father weird because Nathan, you really yeah. never... That sounds really creepy still. Sorry, sorry. Keep going. Oh, so it's like, Nathan, you were kind of the opposite, I think. I mean, I think me also, like, you know, I didn't I, I didn't think I would become a musician anymore. Or, well, we were kind of saying that earlier today in a bad way because we, we were talking to someone else who was talking about a kid and saying, wow, that kid can be anything he wants to be. And I was thinking, well... <laughs> Not that anyone ever came out and said it, but I think the understanding was, wow, there's there's one thing you can be. <laughs> yeah, but that's in a good way, too. Like, but you never lost, like, I, I just, well, I mean, you also, you had a reason for this. For me, it was just like, I just didn't like doing it anywhere. It's kind of got burned out. But I mean, you, you know, obviously there was like a family reason for you to just look for something else well, to do. Yeah, it was kind of like the one thing that I thought gave my life a little bit more meaning. And uh, the cello. I felt, yeah, and yeah, I felt more connected. Sure. Just music in general. I mean, I never really left music at all. Or you could be, it never left me, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I just, you know, and I was a really, really good kid growing up until mm -hmm. I reached about that age. And I, I just got rebellious. And school counselors were calling my parents, you know, you're... You smell marijuana on your son. I mean, am I allowed to say that on your podcast? That, that's terrible. Like, marijuana? I don't think there's any. Oh, it's legal. Yeah. Oh, that was the, 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 the case that I just... They uh, can't go back and prosecute you because of some... <laughs> 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 order in the court. <laughs> yeah. So 
it, it's funny how I, I just kind of made my way back, but it ended up going going to Eastman, and then after Eastman, I went to Yale. That was about a girl more than it was about the teacher, actually, mm-hmm. because I I might have gone to study with Starker at Indiana, but uh, I decided to go to Pariso, and it ended up being a, a good decision anyway. So went to Yale, and then I was just done with school. I was sick of being in school, and in the in the meantime, I had gotten into into Marlboro, which I had sort of reconnected with David Sawyer at that point, and that was a you know you know breathing in that that atmosphere there, the, getting to play with. Gallimere and and Schneider and my God those people I mean Gallimere played Ravel's string quartet for Ravel I mean that's that's playing Berg Opus Opus three with him he knew every note by heart well he had to he could I don't think he could see very well at that point either <laughs> yeah I remember joking with him once I mean he didn't joke around with me he was actually quite <laughs> I didn't mean, joke with him either <laughs> he was quite stern quite mean with me. Um, to you too. Yeah. And I came in, I was the first person to arrive at rehearsal in Happy Valley, I think it was, the, okay. whatever they called the dorms, those those beautiful non-air conditioned dorms. Sorry, I hope you guys aren't listening. And, this is all uh, new to me. So Maybe it's maybe it's air conditioned <laughs> now. I don't know. Meadow Mount is, is all different. Oh. Uh, but did you guys ever go to Meadow Mount? No. I know. I never did. The I didn't do that or Encore. No okay. practice camps. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I no, did I Meadow Mount did twice. It was a good one. I don't know why I went because I all I did was want to break the rules and sneak into the girls' dorm. That was it. <laughs> I think you had to do that for five hours a day there, right? <laughs> yeah, put a cassette tape on of you practicing like, like Dunas exercises. <laughs> Wait, are those silent? I can't remember. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really rustic up there when I was there. I mean, it was super. I didn't even have a blanket. I wrapped myself in my towel at night. What? They didn't give you a blanket? Oh, I'm a weirdo. I, I just, you know, I don't do anything right. So, <laughs> no, you have to bring your own support. At that time, you had to bring oh. your own your own gear from home. And I was like, ah, I'll be fine. <laughs> so sad. No, it's not sad. I'm just, I'm just an idiot. So, yeah. God, I'm talking. I'm a chatterbox. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's a podcast. If she sat here silently, we'd be screwed. This is going to be like... <laughs> Please keep chattering. a 19-hour-long podcast. <laughs> it's like... Uh, it can be a multi-parter, you know? <laughs> God. Like, because I'm worth it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we've been talking about ourselves for 30 episodes. This is a refreshing change yeah. for everybody. Oh, God. This is like Days of Water Roses. Where was I? Before Meadow Mount... Talking about like well, you were talking about uh, going to Marlboro and reconnecting with David. Yeah, Sawyer. oh, the Gallimere story. So I, I walk in, and he plays this really beautiful Stradivarius and had diamonds in the uh, <laughs> where the you know like these hill style pegs instead of the, like the wooden pips on the end. Right, there were like probably one carat diamonds at least. Shut up! Wow. I said, Mister Gallimere, do you go to Cartier to get your uh, violin adjusted? He just looks at me like. <laughs> I think he tried to set me on fire just by looking at me. And yeah, I mean, oh. he probably heard something else. <laughs> well, I, I also think that, that I was a cocky kid. Okay. No. And I was also really uncomfortable. Like I didn't know what to say. So I think with a lot of the old timers from that generation, there was a, like an invisible wall that you really ought not cross unless invited to do so. And even after that familiarity. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But sometimes that makes it worse. It's like when that's the situation, you almost blurt out inappropriate things even more. Because yeah. you don't know what to say. You don't want to say the wrong thing. And then you just end up you know, spontaneous 
Tourette syndrome. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so you went to Marlboro several summers. That summer. I was just there two summers, and I did I did a brief tour. I did this thing to New York and D.C. and and then I I just at this point did you have a job? Yes, it was right before I I got the uh, Hartford Symphony job, and. I had a, a small management in New York took interest in me, and so I signed with them. And I, I thought that that was going to be good, but I, I was actually looking after my mom at the same time. I brought her to Connecticut with me to live, and that's as we all know. We all know somebody who's done something like that. It's 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 hard. It's hard to move back home in a way. But yeah, my mom couldn't walk anymore, and, and I was like looking after her, and it was really hard. So it was either like get a job as a bartender or something, or because the phone wasn't ringing off the hook for me to play concerts. I mean, I, I had won a a big international music competition a few years before. I won the Irving, Irving Klein competition. Hmm. My friends always called it the Calvin Klein competition. <laughs> <laughs> but that 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 competition kind of got me got me going. But I don't like. Well, I don't think anybody likes competitions. Nobody likes auditions. But I really, really have a tremendous amount of anxiety around that. And I, I in my mind, I was just well. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I don't need to do that again. <laughs> Want a big one? That's that's fine. That's good enough for me. And I probably should have kept going, you know, but ought of must have, should have, you know, you, you can never. But I mean, know, were you hoping you to play know. solo concerts? Yeah, that was my, I mean, I grew up wanting to be. A soloist. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us are, are sort of trained that way anyway. But, you know, it's funny, right around that time, I started adopting a, a slightly different attitude that, you know, well, maybe opportunity will knock in other places. So when I got the job in Hartford, some things happened. You know, I, I got I, I got a few more solo concerts, but it was really when I when I won my position in Detroit that doors started opening. And I these I are to, principal positions that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I only went after principal positions sp- specifically because I in Hartford I, I realized, hey, I'm pretty good at this, and the challenges that are sort of inherent in that position are they came pretty easily to me, like leading a cello section and dealing with people. I think for the most part, when I'm of sound mind, <laughs> uh, <laughs> comes very naturally to me. And so I wouldn't say it's easy money or anything, but uh, <laughs> I, I liked it and I, I was good at it and I, I enjoyed it. Plus that time spent in Hartford, I got to learn all the big solos, all the big pieces. And and uh, it may, may not have been the Berlin Philharmonic, but it was a, a job and it got, got me a lot of experience. So I was in that position for about nine years during which time I, I met Betsy, and she was in the Coast Guard Band. She's a French horn player. She was in the U.S. Coast Guard Band and in the Hartford Symphony, so she, she was uh. working quite a bit. And, and so shortly after, after I met her, I won the Detroit Symphony Principal Cello position, and I was there for 10 years. And uh, I never thought I'd leave. because We loved it there. We got married there. Our kids were born there. I mean, in Detroit... Now, a lot of people talk a lot of smack about Detroit, but I'll tell you this, <laughs> it really gets under your skin in a, in a good way. It, Detroit is a, a very special place. And uh, we've talked about moving back at times, you know, but we know that we'll, we'll be here mm-hmm. for the long haul. We love LA too, but yeah. So that orchestra, when, when I joined it in 2002, it was during what they were referring to as like a second golden period. They talk about like the Paul Perret years as like the big golden period, like the he was like sort of the George Sell of Detroit, mm-hmm. and he created this magnificent orchestra. And the Detroit Symphony's been like beset by so many problems over the years, and it's by dint of the musicians wanting the quality to stay high yeah. that I mean they fought for everything they had. And uh, I knew at some point that 
there's going to be a work stoppage. And lo and behold, there was one mm-hmm. uh, back in, was it 2011? 2010, 2011. Yeah. And uh, I hadn't considered auditioning anywhere else because I, I really loved my job. I loved that orchestra. We loved our house. You know, it was a <laughs> special place. And Betsy and I are kind of dyed in the wool Midwesterners. I, I, uh, maybe Oklahoma City is a stretch for Midwest. I think that's considered Southwest. But <laughs> my mom's from Chicago and then I lived in the Midwest quite a bit. Anyway, I'm rambling. I say, um, way too much too. I'm, I'm, that somebody pointed that out to me. I'm going to really try not to. <laughs> Everybody do. says, um, don't worry. I've used, I've used my quota of ums. Um, <laughs> You're um, <laughs> damn it. So the last, just, I know this is sort of stream of consciousness, but before coming out to LA, Leonard Slatkin had become our, our music director after Nemi Yervi. And those years with Yervi were just the best. And I, I mean, of course, I'm biased, like, because Yervi hired me and, and uh, very, very special. He gave me a lot of opportunities. I played a lot of concertos with him. And then when Slatkin took over, he was also very generous to me. And so I was assigned to learn the John Williams cello concerto and it was going to be recorded for Naxos. And that was to happen during the season where we went on strike. Uh, I was going to ask uh, you about this. Anyways, yeah. I'm glad you... So, so that happened. And during the strike, I was able to sort of spread my wings a little bit. And I was kind of a mercenary principal cellist. I played principal in the St. Paul <laughs> Chamber Orchestra. I played principal in Bergen in Norway, where we did some recordings and stuff like that. And and I was a, a finalist in the concert about principal audition, and that didn't work out. But um, How long was the strike? Strike was six months. Six, six months okay. to the day. Hmm. And so during that point, like, Chamber Music Festivals would call, or series would call me up to to play, and I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm free. <laughs> I'm available. And so... But it looked like we were moving towards a, a settlement. And at that point, I was doing okay financially. And Betsy, bless her, she is, uh, she's the money person in the house. <laughs> she's so much better. Oh, I mean, that goes without saying. She's, she's just the numbers person. Money burns a hole in my pocket. So she grabs it before I can, <laughs> I can do <laughs> anything with it. And uh, she managed to save a bundle before the strike happened. I mean, over a period of like... Six, seven years, she saved like a year's salary mm-hmm. of my salary, something like that. She would probably tell you otherwise, but uh, <laughs> she downplays her brilliancy in that area. She is, she's very, very good with money. She was able to buy you a blanket. <laughs> <laughs> she bought me a pillow too. <laughs> and a teddy bear. Every time we would come close to like the orchestra settling, like Betsy and I would say, do I go back or do I just like try to launch myself as a... Chamber right. musician and a solo player because I was getting concerto right. dates. Uh, all these things were happening. And mm-hmm. and uh, then the, the orchestra settled. And of course, I, I went back at the beginning of the next season because I was all booked up for the rest of the season where they settled. And the Williams concerto was put on the next season. I then saw the ad for the LA Philharmonic cello, principal cello position. And I thought, ah, oh, I don't know. I'd send my, send my application. People listening out there, if you think that it's nothing but politics and who you know or whatever, getting a job, <laughs> I hate to disappoint you, but it's far more routine and mundane and, and not <laughs> mysterious. You send in your application like everybody else, you get invited to audition, and then you, you know, it's all done fair and square. So I, when I got my, my invitation letter, I collected all my music. It's like, it seemed like it was like two and a half hours worth of music. <laughs> like Ein Heldenleben, complete, you know, oh, really? You're just going to drop the needle. I mean, come on. You have to do the whole thing. I, I always say to students, if you can play Heldenleben from beginning to end, the cello part, you can play anything. I mean, it's hard. So um, I had the Williams to learn and I had the 
because uh, you're still you're now doing the recording project now that you're back at work. Well, I mean that that was still a ways off, but I'm an I'm a famous crammer. Mm-hmm. Like I I will paint myself into a corner and have to do everything at the eleventh hour. Was it Bernstein who said like to produce something worthwhile, you need a plan and not quite enough time? <laughs> well, yeah, I was like not yeah not even close to enough time. So we got to the Williams Concerto, and I had been working on it. But then I really started the heavy-duty work. Got through the concerts. The recording was made out of the live stuff, the live broadcasts. And then I, I had a, pressure. Like a couple days <laughs> to, to go through the, the, Philharmonic, uh, the Philharmonic list. It was all stuff that I knew except for maybe the John Adams. So, and I was in really good shape at the time. So you know when you're on fire, when you're, <laughs> when you're, you know, you're in fighting shape, you're in like Olympic audition, I call it audition condition, you yeah. know, which is... You know, like the guys that make it to the top of Everest. You know, it's one thing to make it to base camp, but to like to get to the summit, it's another thing. I mean, you know what it takes to win an audition. You have to be, you can't maintain that. You can't maintain it. And I remember after the whole Williams thing was done, I was just spent and I was kind of dejected. You know, like after a performance like that, sometimes you get like kind of Yeah, it was a big letdown. Well, I was practicing pulling an all-nighter before I came to LA for the audition. And- Betsy came to check on me in the middle of the night. It was like 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I said, Betsy, should I even bother getting on the plane? My flight was in like seven hours. <laughs> she said, Robert, and Betsy, if you're listening, I want you to hear this. She said, Robert, while you were playing, I was, it's hard for me not to get emotional about this. because it's, it, it really had a huge effect on me, which, which she said. She said, uh, I was uh, mentally preparing the garage sale. I mean, it was like that, her saying that, like getting our house ready to move, like her saying I sounded that good. And that gave me so much confidence to hear her say that because she is, she's, she's got high standards. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I was doing something right. So I, I got, I got to the audition here and stayed at a hotel like far away because I don't like bumping into anybody. I'm just like, no, I can't. Right. And uh, got to the hall. I remember Ellie Nishi brought me to my room. I couldn't move my hand. My hand was completely effed. I mean, it was gone. I couldn't even, like, it was frozen. Sometimes, like, if I'm overplaying and under-practicing, I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. this will cave in, and it's like a muscle spasm, and I can't move it. Uh. I went to Jeff, and I said, Jeff, I, I can't play. I mean, I, I didn't know his name at the point. At that point. I'm like, <laughs> hey, hey you, tall guy. <laughs> you look like you're in charge. <laughs> Mustachioed man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And he said, well, we do have an opening. There was a cancellation for the next day. He said, if you can come back, the committee, you know, would be upset if you had left and they learned that you couldn't play or whatever. And Mm. just, you know, think about if you don't show up, you don't show up. So I was really happy that they had done that for me. And I, I panicked. I was like, oh, Jesus, you know, well, this isn't worth it. It's like, I don't have a shot anyway. That's how I felt like going into the auditions. And this is valuable because every audition that I've won, every audition I've done well in, I've had that attitude that I, I don't have anything to lose. I'm not going to win this. Rochester, Hartford, Detroit, and LA. I went in there and I just played as though I was playing a concert. I had the right mindset. The next day. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- th- so I slept, get this. I So I slept like 15 hours without <laughs> getting up for as much as a pee break. Sounds and awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know that that's that hasn't happened since. Maybe that's the best audition strategy. Well, you <laughs> just wear yourself out, basically chop your hand off with a cleaver, let it grow back overnight. Sleep well, for 15 so hours. I got it up. Is. I, so I, I, my 
two-day beard. I didn't even take a shower. I just put my dress clothes on, got my cello out, and just very like gingerly. Like, okay, all right, all right. Well, show up at the hall at like ten or whatever. Played three rounds that day, and was a, mm-hmm. it was a long day. And I was on this uh, committee, by the way. Yeah,、so. I know,、and. I know. And our friend Julie was the other finalist who was selected, and and、uh, she's now principal of St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And and I was like, wow.、Oh. And there was a lot, a big gap between the time that we auditioned and then our trial weeks were like several months away. Right, because it has to be a time when the music director is conducting. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so I bump into you at. Noi, right? We were teaching at Noi together. It was just a little bit like、uh, CJ was there. It was a little awkward. We went out for pho. Do you remember this?、Mm-hmm. We had lunch together, and then I was with Julie at the Seattle Chamber Music Festival. And you know, Julie's like super awesome. Like she's super friendly and social. And I'm I'm sitting there like in the corner, like, <laughs> getting more and more uptight with like every bite of food I'm taking. This festival is wonderful in, in Seattle, where we we all take our meals together, and you know, it's great、uh, unless you're me and you're anti- antisocial and you sit in the corner. <laughs> so, oh God, oh you guys, you didn't know what you were getting into. And、uh, and then there was another festival in Maine where I was playing with Martin、uh-huh, and、okay. Joey Silverstein. It was his thing, the first chair All Stars thing.、Okay. So I was invited to that way before the LA thing happened. I was invited as the principal of, of Detroit, and so we got to play all these all these chamber pieces with Joey Silverstein, one of, another one of my heroes, and、uh, and it was like yeah, it was a little awkward, you know. Yeah, you're running into. Committee members, principals, and and competitors. <laughs> and, and yeah, my my competitor, and I'm like, ah,、oh, she's awesome, you know. Ah,、oh, damn it. So, <laughs> so anyway, look, we've all taken auditions. It's worked out. It's some sometimes it's our day, sometimes it's not. The bottom line is like there are a lot of qualified people for any position, and and just to say too that from my perspective, being on the committee, you know, we had no idea, and and you know. No real interest in any of these circumstances that had led up. It, it's interesting to me now,、oh. but at the time, you know, all we were doing was okay. They bring out the next person, they play. Well, yeah. Whereas、that's... to you, it was like there were so many ups and downs. But it, that's worth remembering too. That if if you do have strange circumstances around an audition, sometimes there's an assumption that oh, somehow that's going to show to the committee somehow、yeah. that I'm you know I don't feel ready or. I did. This doesn't quite feel right. The committee's not going to know or care. Well, I was when I had talked to Jeff. I said, "I'm just going to fly home." I, I didn't ask for another time. I just said, I, "I'm going to go." He said, "Wait, I think we have a this cancellation," and that's when they decided to give it to.、Me. If it weren't for that cancellation, I just would have left, and I'd likely still be in in Detroit.、Um, We'd be flying there to interview you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's happened before, hasn't it?、Um, it's weird. It's like a sliding doors moment. I know, I know. There's like another you living in Detroit now. <laughs> like the, but the, but the whole—he's Asian. He has hair, and he's very tall. <laughs> he plays basketball, <laughs>、uh, and they like him a lot better than they like they like me. You know, anyway, Never. so Never. the、um, the the confluence of of events that kind of led up to me doing well in the LA Phil audition. I don't think I would have played as well as I did had it not been exactly that way. I I don't know. It's it's so much of it has to do with. Just timing, you know. And I thought, oh, I didn't prepare well enough for this.、And、it's like, oh, nonsense! I've played this stuff so many times, and and I'm in. When you're in really good shape, you can pretty much play play it all, right? I think. Yeah, I mean, there those those have been rare times. 
feeling feeling at the top of the the game like that. I don't think I've ever taken an audition where I felt like just like I could just go for it and I felt awesome. And no, I think they were all terrible experiences. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's funny. I in my mind, I've never really separated how one prepares for a symphony concert versus how one prepares for a concerto or my whole life has been sort of governed by like oh shit i don't have enough time because i'm a slack i'm a procrastinator and it's not because i'm lazy it's because i think i have whatever equivalent there is as a musician of of writer's block i mean it's an anxiety that for many years i couldn't get the cello out of the case unless i had a suit on and that was a, like a running joke of mine. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't get my cello out of my case unless I have a suit on. And people are like, ha, 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 ha. Well, it's true. It was true because I had this phobia of sort of facing myself mm-hmm. and knowing that my standards were so high and that there's no possibility of even approaching that. So you had to feel like you were right up against it even I, to... I, I think so. And I, I still I still pull that stuff. It's, it's, it's funny. I... Uh, shouldn't be saying this out loud. I mean, I, I I get my best work done at the 11th hour. I always have. And I get very angry at myself for that reason. But I go through these bursts of uh, intense work and intensive work where I might not feel the real benefit of it right away, but months down the road, I might get the cello out when I don't have a suit on <laughs> and sit down and play. And I'll be like, I'm better. And do do you remember when it's you were like in the Matrix or something? Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, you 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 remember like when when you were a kid, like you take your lesson and you go home and you practice, and then like you wake up the next day and it's like, wow, I'm better than I was yesterday. You know, it, it, those steps were very visible. That little I call it like a little spiral staircase, but eventually those steps start to widen. They get they get they get longer and longer, and they turn into plateaus. And it's a really good. And visual. I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, so for me, I mean, uh, those uh, intense bursts of uh, activity, provided I'm really paying attention to what I'm doing, those serve as the, the, the impetus for improvement, like visual improvement. Like, hey, I'm better than I was a few months ago. Like I can play, I, like I just, I just learned the Barber Concerto early this year and performed it with the Fort Wayne Philharmonic. And a few months later, I just I was having so much more fun playing the cello, and that's that's what it is for me is the, the just the tactile enjoyment of doing what I'm doing, and, I, and it connected me to to that sort of uncomplicated time when I was a kid, and I was just discovering it. And I love that, and I want to recreate that as much as I can in my my own practicing. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Like and and I try to talk to students about that because I know my approach to teaching is a little a little out there, a little different. But how do you bring that out of the students you work with, uh, mm. that sense of discovery? and Well, every student requires a different method. I always talk about this this one teacher, uh, Theodor Leszczycki, who was a Polish-German piano professor. Like Everybody studied with him. All the big names studied with him. And uh, he was interviewed by somebody once saying, uh, Maestro, what is, your, what is your method? He said, what method? He's like, my method is it's a bespoke sort of thing for the student. And uh, yeah, I don't agree with the sort of cookie cutter mentality. I mean, I know there you can achieve a certain degree of success that way, but you run the risk of having too many students sounding the same. And I find that to be, well, I think it serves a purpose. I think it's a bit lazy Mm -hmm. and it's not how I would teach, but I'm not saying it doesn't have any merit. Well, I mean, that kind of approach can work for players that, that really need a lot of fundamental help, right? I mean, if 
if there's a method that can get someone from kind of ground zero to having things work at least. Right, if it's a tear down and rebuild, you know, it's one of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need some walls before you can. <laughs> yeah. Flip. yeah, be careful with your language there. No, well, so, I think, you know, I, I'm not a good teacher, so like it's interesting to hear. I doubt you. that. No, I'm a really bad teacher. So it's, it's funny to, to hear, because I, I had a moment where I was listening to somebody a few months ago and I thought, I don't know how to help this person specifically. That's what makes me I mean, in terms so of, of craft, like mechanics? Just like this person, I think I was like making it worse because it was like I was trying to get them to sound a certain way. Whereas what they really needed was somebody who could take what they had and make it the best it could be. Because not because it's stupid to think everybody should sound the same. That's just like yeah, well, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I I like to try to find out what makes that person tick. Like what what could potentially light a fire under them. I mean that that largely has to come from from within the the person. They have to want really want that. But you were talking about uh, oh yeah, what you were saying, Akiko, like really made me think about the difference between coaching and teaching. I mean, most a lot of teachers don't make the the distinction. And I think what you're talking about is more of a, a like you, you might say, believe that you're a better coach than a teacher. Yeah. I mean, Does like make- I've only, I've mostly been more comfortable doing like excerpt stuff because it's like, this is what it should sound like. And that works with excerpts to like sure. a certain extent, but yeah. like for, as a teacher, that doesn't work. You're not helping them with their playing. I agree. Bridging the gap between like why you do something versus like how you do something and tying those things together. That's, yeah. It's a meet. little bit like it's a backwards thing. It's like, it, here's how it should sound. And then, you know, you go from there where, you know, I think a good teacher takes what's happening like addresses the mechanics, not... Yeah. You know. To answer your question a little further, Nate, I, I try to approach it from two different viewpoints. And you could call it uh, Floristan and Eusebius or Apollo and Dionysius or... Cheech remember, and Chong. Highlights Magazine. <laughs> Cheech and Chong. Well, they're, they're more on one side. That's true. <laughs> oh, Goofus and Gallant. Goofus and Gallant. You know Goofus and Gallant. Or did we talk about this already? No. I used to get Highlights Magazine. I was definitely, I was gallant until I was about 12 and then I was totally Goofus. I'm still Goofus. And just ask Betsy, I'm Goofus. Ask my kids, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So approaching something from the, let's say, let's be from an Apollonian point of view. It's like the, the craft, the almost antiseptic nature of putting something together versus, you know, setting that aside and then approaching it from the the Dionysian point of view where it's like you're you're the party animal mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're 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 having fun with it and i find that when those two approaches meet in the middle that's where you've got mm. real artistry of the person mm. and i you know this is just a theory of mine and I, I i've used myself as a guinea pig in this department so in my own practicing as as haphazard as my practice can be i do definitely make a distinction between mechanics and then artistry. And at some point I cut myself off and then I say, Robert, you're going to play now. Mm -hmm. You're just going to play and you're not going to stop. You're not going to stop for every little thing that goes wrong. Make myself do that. And that that has actually helped me considerably. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the condemnation that that voice and the the, Mm -hmm. the constant critic is, is not quite as active. And you get better at taming Taming that sort of juvenile side of yourself versus the adult side of yourself, which is, oh, you could always say adult juvenile in the in the in the mix as well. You know, does that make any sense at all? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, and I, I feel like Kiko, you're too hard on yourself as far as I mean, you you are always worried that you're not telling people how, but I mean, often what they need is just to be inspired or or frustrated and to to know where it is that they have to go and you know, they they I figure mean, I it never, out themselves. I never really had a teacher who was great at breaking things down into 
logical blocks. I think, you know, I was taught much in that vein, like, here's, do this. You know, you, maybe that's why I got better at imitating things and learning that way, but it also gives me a feeling that sometimes I don't really understand how something works or that, you know, certainly how I'm doing it. And that, I think that, that's sort of a barrier that's hard for me to overcome in teaching. But yeah, but it's fascinating to hear how you practice because that's something I maybe I should try. It's like the just playing and not letting that, because like it's easy to practice using the little critical voice going, oh no, that, that you need to do that again. That shift wasn't clean or that, you know. That. And that's, that's exactly what prevented me from even just opening the cello case. Yeah. And. But it's, it's, it's great. I kind of want to like go home and try it, you know, because it, it's. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's so great for me. And this goes back to the like winning an audition or, or doing well in a, in a competition or even playing to your own satisfaction in a, in a concert. For me, it's about creating the right emotional landscape in your mind. And I mean, you've got a lot of keys to that door, you know, to that door where you're going to get work done. It could be a, a miserable room like the one we're in, or it can be <laughs> a, just a palace. You know, it could be a, uh, you know, I'm picturing you know, the billiards room in the, in the game Clue. You know, I always wanted a room like that. I don't know. It's just it's, you know, Corinthian leather. And, you know, Corinthian so. leather. Corinthian leather. Where am I getting out of that? Right. I'm not Rick, in a New Yorker. Ricardo Montalban. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I'm sitting in this town car. Yeah. <laughs> I'm practicing my cello in town car. I actually played the viola in a Ford Escort, driving about 100 miles an hour down the road. Where you were driving, or no? I was, oh, pass- I was a passenger. Uh, yeah, that's There's a, that's, a viola joke in here. That's, that's, that's a little bit of a a, uh, Ford, a fear and fear and loathing Ford in Escort, Las Vegas we, we, sort of t- style story. But I didn't know. That, yeah, the Ford Escorts could go a hundred. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was uh, well uh, mentioned. Corinthian leather and oh yeah, this was this was uh, <laughs> very. This was not Corinthian leather. It was. Corinthian terry cloth or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was. Velour. Corinthian Vinyl. velour. I love that word velour. It's so, it's, Faux classy. Yeah, it's like a... It's not velvet. Counter, it's velour. Counterfeit luxury. <laughs> uh, That's what you, I want my playing to be. <laughs> okay, you guys brought up something. Actually, Akiko, you brought it up about imitation. And I've heard you both. You're great at imitating voices. And this is one, one thing. When I was, when I was a kid... Okay, I played, I think this, this definitely plays into getting good at an instrument and also mastering languages. I mean, I, I learned, I grew up listening to various accents, you know, like my parents both had different accents and my grandmother was from the old country and, and all that. But uh, when I was a kid growing up in, in Oklahoma City, I was featured on a, on a midday program. They took me to, it was a program called Danny's Day. It's like a big deal. It's like a, this is like sort of a Johnny Carson-like, uh, and then I play my, my little Saint-Saëns concerto or whatever it was and go over to talk. And I saw the videotape later. So I was in sixth grade when this happened. So I was, I was 12. And I heard myself talk like this. And I had <laughs> no idea I sounded like that. <laughs> and I was horrified. How old were you? 12. Okay. Either 11 or 12, but right, right around there. And uh, yeah, similar time for me. And so I made it my mission to get rid of my accent because I, I didn't, my mom was from Chicago and she, <laughs> you know, oh, these damn Okies, you know, she's always, always saying, you know, <laughs> criticizing everybody. I loved everybody I grew up with, but I think, I wish I still had that accent. Actually, it was the, probably the one authentic thing about me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I always wish Nathan still had his accent. Well, you could probably turn it on. I, when I go visit, it comes back a little bit, yeah. especially when I say the number five. <laughs> I don't know what what it is about that five, number. Five. five. For me, it's like changing changing the oil. The oil. <laughs> or you may want to fix your height pump. But that exercise, insecurity, and you wanting to become somebody else. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was Catholic well, family is a mess, a mess. But learning to do that and emulating newscasters and getting rid of whatever. You know, I cultivated this accent that I have, whatever it is. Yeah. Nobody can guess where I'm from. And uh, yeah, I. Uh, but that process, I mean, it's, you know, you're not expecting it to be perfect right away. I mean, you record yourself, you listen back, you make a change, record again, listen back, and, and it, it's an iterative. But it cultivates your, yeah. your ear a lot. And I think, you know, having heard you Maybe imitate that's the everybody. Maybe playing. I never did this. More of a question. It's funny. As, like a, as a person whose heritage is really not really in any kind of question. I obviously came from but it's one so, place. It's so interesting. I mean, everybody's got a story. I always love hearing people's. Do you want to do a, a little bit of a plug for your concerto coming up? Because it's coming up, like, you know. Do I have a concerto coming up? You know, Dvorak. Oh, oh, the thing with... Uh, What's the date for that? That's next Sunday. Oh, it we'll, is. We'll have the episode oh, up. You're painting yourself into a corner. Oh, my God. Hey, I heard you practicing today. You did did not. You're practicing. All right, here, I'm going to practice my earpods in. Like, I listen to a (laughs) podcast and, like, so I can kind of hear myself. I have to do this. I always practice. This might be interesting. Yes. I always practice with some kind of distraction. Really? Like, it has to be like a ball game or like a season of Dexter or something. I find I concentrate much better. Fascinating. Much, much better. And what about at the concert? Do you feel like, are you imagining, are you like sort of visualizing? (laughs) Well, no. At that point, I'm hoping that Floristan has entered the room (laughs) or or, uh, Dionysius or Goofus or whoever you are. The juvenile (laughs) party that likes to have fun. You know, I'm like Glenn Gould had like an alter ego named Teddy Slots. I'm getting better at it, but it's like, it's always a struggle. I've struggled my entire life with stage nerves and it all, came from one event. Mm. I had a memory slip in the last movement of Baccarini B-flat major cello concerto. I had a memory slip in the same spot, the exposition and development of the last movement and Sonata Rondo thing. And it spooked me. So I've been grappling with that for 36 years. And yeah. it's funny because for so many years, I tried to go around it various methods. But the past few years, I've been going through it. And it's it's working out much better. You know, so we can get into that in another podcast. I know, because like, that's something I'm, I'm sort of looking down the barrel now, it feels like, like I'm going to have to finally just reckon with it. You just have, you have to know that like, you're not alone by any stretch. I mean, I, some people have said to me, say, oh, you project a, a really confident outward. You know, Definitely. I, yeah, we can and, attest to that, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a mess on the inside. I'm an absolute mess. Well, I have been. I'm much more put together now, I think mentally, <laughs> in terms of, of uh, sort of believing in what I can do. But it's, it's a struggle. It's like, it's never been a struggle for me to play the cello. It's never been a struggle for me to memorize music or, or play in tune or, or, or do any of the, the things that, that often people do struggle with. But what has been a struggle for me is the, is the anxiety is coping with that. So and like, what is it specifically then? If it's not the technique, it's not the, is it a, like, what is it about? What's the anxiety about? Do you know? Well, I think at its core is a, uh, probably a, a, like a, I would say it's a very strong source or, or affect of like feeling 
useless or not good enough or never be good enough. I mean, I, well, you mentioned having this like standards that you know are unachievable because they are so impossibly high. Yeah, and you know, growing up in the situation I grew up in, my my mom was not well mentally, and uh, my father was an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and uh, my mother used to say things. I mean, my mother was an insanely jealous person. Even if I do well in a concert or if I, I remember winning a, a competition when I was young and she, she'd say to me, oh, you'll never be anything but a two-bit cellist. And that is the one phrase that like <laughs> that critic in my mind repeats on infinite loop. It's never going to stop. And it's learning. I think it's learning how to coexist with things like that and say, okay, you're there. To acknowledge it. I get it. I'm never going to, to vanquish that. It's there. It's painful, but I'm crushing it, you know, <laughs> despite you. It's those things that I think make us interesting and better and I think deepen our expression. And I don't know if that makes any sense. It I, does. I, I think there's, you know, I, there's that, like in your playing, I'm sure there's, you know, that dealing with like the demons and the tortured stuff that makes it that much better. Yeah. I mean, th there's a lot of, there's a lot of darkness there. And uh, anybody who's dated me can tell you. Oh, you <laughs> I guys, that. I you got guys are today. crushing it. Seriously. I mean, I power, power couple. You guys are amazing. I admire you so much. A lot. We've got a podcast, at least. I. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, tell us what's going on soon, because you've got a uh, big concerto. Yeah, here in town. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a few things, a few irons on the fire outside of the fill. I'm um, playing Dvorak's cello concerto with uh, the Santa Monica Symphony with our beloved Guido Lamel conducting, and he's a fellow violinist in the LA Phil. He is. He's been here many years, and he's also fellow Oki. Oh, I yeah, forgot. So he's oh, weird. A, What's the date for that concert? That is October 20th, right after our run out to Orange County. Okay. Which uh, So Danny Rothmiller is going to drive me to oh, Santa Monica nice. and I'll play the second half of that concert. I'm just, yeah, it's crazy. I've done crazier things than that, but well, this if you is guys, still uh, crazy. Get there. Can they, uh, would they have a chance to meet you and say hi? And of course. Are... Yeah. Um, maybe after. Because <laughs> 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 I may be uh, a little, little crazed. Uh, beforehand. You'd be watching Dexter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making my own kill room in my mind. Uh, what else? My what? own kill room out of the divorce I can share. That should be the title of this episode, The Kill Room in My Mind. <laughs> that, yeah, that's the cherry soda. It was, yeah, it was, like a, yeah, it was like a multiple homicide. <laughs> that that was just, just, ah, everywhere. And they're like maraschino cherry bits everywhere. Uh, that really will kill you. Yikes. And I've got a few, you know, oh, uh, Oh, gosh, a TV show that I'm involved in. Ah. Uh, my good friend Scott Yu, he's the music director of the oh, Mexico City. My mom was just telling me how she's enjoying watching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so Scott is doing the show. It's so, sort of a Anthony Bourdain style show about music, and it's a show called uh, Now Hear This. It's uh, four episodes on great performances on PBS, and I'm in the fourth episode. And, oh, I had no idea. And it's uh, it's about Handel in Italy, and. Uh, it's fun. It's really fun. Oh, did you shoot it this summer? While yeah, you were there? Okay, I, was there, I was there for a week. And it's kind of a bummer. Some of the, the best part of the filming didn't make it into the episode. We were at the Ferrari manufacturer in Maranello. Oh. And we got to drive Ferraris around wow. Tuscany and play Strads. And it was just, did that happen? It was crazy. But it didn't make it into the final cut, even uh. though it was played for the test audiences. And they were like, this is the best part. Aww. Didn't make it in for whatever huh. reason, but there's still plenty of, of other 
really amazing footage and and uh scott is he's like a leonard bernstein type i mean he's he's uh really really good at this now can everybody watch that episode already yeah yeah all episodes are are up on whatever pbs is pbs.org i think we'll link to it yeah you can find if you just type in now hear this you know Mm -hmm. episodes one through four so yeah i'm i'm in there I can't awesome. watch it. I cringe. Oh, I, would, <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking about having a little watch party at my house next Wednesday. So anybody want to come? <laughs> Please come. Right, this this be, is actually, the invitation. Yeah, that's come, right. It would be the, the 23rd that I have. A, it's going to be like Italian cheese and wine and all sorts of goodies. Mm. So, of course, you two are you two are invited. Well, now now it's, it's public, so everyone's at no. <laughs> I don't think this episode There's will be limited up by then, parking. But, but we'll. <laughs> you can park anywhere in Huntington. <laughs> Not going to give you my address yet, though. Uh, <laughs> that's gonna be very mad. Uh, well, thank you so much for thank you guys being here I, with us. This is so think. much fun. I could I could go for hours. And oh, maybe I'm, we will after we turn this off. I'm but. flapping my gums. I'm I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I I never make any sense. I feel like I don't make any sense. No, you make complete sense. That was a very good goodbye, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry, audience. Um, actually, I'm not sorry. Very proud of myself. <laughs> That's a good idea. I opened up to the world. Hey, if the, uh, if anybody's still listening at this point, that means they, they thought you made tremendous sense, and, right? Because otherwise they would have clicked over to, you know, Joe Rogan. <laughs> Joe Rogan. Hey, Jordan Peterson's going to be on Joe Rogan tonight again. Uh well Joe thank Rogan. you again Bob. <laughs> no thank and you guys thanks for putting up with me i uh this has been a, a great pleasure and uh i hope that why don't you ask everyone to come back next time on stand partners for life everybody don't let the best in life pass you by go to stand partners for life and watch all 30 well they can't really watch but they can listen at least well you can watch too but there's not much happening on the screen <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah, I, I'm late to the podcast game. I keep thinking, oh, wait, where's, isn't there a picture? <laughs> what channel is it on? <laughs> what the, what channel? <laughs> yeah. Honey, can you get up and change the channel? <laughs> That's where I am still. I'm still in like, <laughs> my parents gave me their little black and white TV. I used to watch MASH and Taxi. <laughs> <laughs>